and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranke, and I'm here today in the studio with Ice Interview writer Frank Walter Sands. We are going to be taking a look at his 2022 piece, Disaster on Dark Seas, an account of the sinking of the E.S. Guadalfos. On the morning of 20 November 1944, a single U-boat cruised silently at periscope depth beneath the rough waves of the North Atlantic. Lurking just a few kilometers off the northwest coast of Iceland's Reykjanes Peninsula, The lone periscope was virtually invisible in the turbulent gray ocean waters. The German submarine, type V-11C-41, designated U-300, was commanded by a 24-year-old Lieutenant Fritz Hein, with a crew of 50 men, barely out of their teens. Their mission was simple, yet dangerous and brutal to attack and destroy Allied vessels off the southwestern tip of Iceland as they would approach the Icelandic mainland from North America. The bigger the ship they could sink, the better. Germany was losing hundreds of U-boats every year, and the odds were increasingly stacked against them with Allied domination of the skies above the Atlantic which could more easily spot them with their improved radar, making the German submarines extremely vulnerable to attack. The mortality rate of the U-boat crews was an astounding 75%, a fact not lost on the crew of the U-300. The news of devastating widespread Allied bombing of German cities had reached them prior to their departure a month before, and the thought of their loved ones being blasted to oblivion in the ruins of their once-proud cities, weighed heavily on the sailors, who longed for vengeance. Allied forces had taken back France from the German Wehrmacht, while the Soviets had already conquered most of Axis-controlled Eastern Europe. Italy was now under Allied control. Germany was losing the war on all fronts, but the demand for an unconditional surrender was almost universally rejected and, in fact, generally strengthened German resolve to fight on. Unsurprisingly, the primary aim of every U-boat commander was to attack whenever possible, prowling the perilous seas in the face of increasingly formidable Allied anti-submarine tactics, pursuing targets with undeniable courage and dash, holding out with determination and intelligence. The true leaders of the war at sea were unquestionably the U-boat commanders, and the men of the U-boats were celebrated as national heroes back in their homeland. Highly selective, U-boat crews were an elite band, akin to the comparably daring German Air Force Luftwaffe pilots. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill believed the Battle of the Atlantic represented Germany's best chance of defeating the Western powers, and later wrote in his autobiography that the U-boats were the only thing in the war that truly frightened him. Since departing from their base in Nazi-occupied Norwegian port of Trondheim some five weeks previously, the U-300 had yet to fire a single torpedo, 
Finding convoys of Allied ships was no simple feat without the assistance of the Luftwaffe for reconnaissance. Any engagement required enormous patience and was likely to be highly dangerous. As Commander Hein peered through the submarine's periscope, he suddenly spotted a single large gray ship on the horizon, heading southwest, which had evidently been separated from its protective convoy, probably during the previous night's storm. It was time to hunt. The commander estimated the distance at less than 2,000 meters, well within attack range. Speaking excitedly, but never lacking the proper commanding tone, he ordered the crew over the submarine's microphone to prepare for their first attack. The commander's restrained enthusiasm was infectious. After all these weeks in the dank, cramped submarine, the crew would finally get what they came for. To fight in mortal combat with the enemy and win by all and any means necessary. Duty demanded it. Honor was at stake. The very survival of their cherished Nazi Reich and the fatherland depended on it. Seven-meter-long torpedoes weighing more than a ton each were deftly loaded by a well-trained team of young men into firing tubes. while the U-300 quickly re-emerged and the executive officer turned the submarine to face their enemy prey. Commander Hein duly waited until the firing tubes were reported to be flooded. At 12.02, with a determined shout of fire, a T-5 acoustic homing torpedo shot out of the submarine, reaching its maximum speed of 44 kilometers an hour within seconds, making it nearly impossible for its prey to evade. The T-5 torpedo was specifically designed to be attracted by the sonic pitch of the ship's propellers and would explode under the ship's stern, even if aimed imprecisely. Because of the risk being spotted by air, U-boats were designed to dive in as little as 30 seconds, which is exactly what the U-300 did. Total silence had to be observed following an attack. The smallest sounds could be heard by enemy hydrophones from kilometers away, bringing often fatal consequences. As the U-300 submerged and cut her engines, Fritz Hein quietly counted down the seconds with a stopwatch until the deadly T-5 found its target, but frustratingly, the torpedo malfunctioned and detonated too early. A second attack was ordered. The submarine rose to the surface and fired. A narrow stream of bubbles followed the second T-5 as it shot out of the torpedo tube. At 12.07, the 6,000-ton British oil tanker SS Shirvan was struck aft near the ship's engine room by the torpedo, instantly detonating on impact. A massive, deafening explosion tore a large, burning hole in the ship, which then instantly ignited the full load of fuel that the ship was carrying. The faded tanker erupted into a fireball. Desperate sailors, many of them covered with oil and in flames, threw themselves into the churning darkness of the frigid November seas and struggled to swim toward the two remaining lifeboats that had been deployed. Their surviving crew and gunners huddled shivering in the two lifeboats, 
many of them badly injured. From the coast of Iceland, several people witnessed the horrific attack and watched helplessly as the burning wreck of the SS Shirvan gradually began to founder just a few kilometers out to sea. No rescue ship nor vessel of any kind was to be seen. The news of the vicious attack was reported by telephone to Allied authorities, and within minutes, rescue ships were dispatched in heavy seas and 40-knot winds to search for any survivors, but it would be hours before they could reach the waterlogged crew, many of whom suffered horrible burns and were succumbing to hypothermia. When the percussive sound of the explosion reached them through the turbulent ocean, the submarine crew momentarily broke protocol and cheered exuberantly. The tall flames could easily be observed from the U-300's periscope. Victory had at last been achieved, and the crew would soon celebrate, but for now they had to evade any Allied warships or aircraft with their terrifying depth charges, which could burst the U-boat's hull, instantly transforming their deadly weapon into a water-filled steel coffin, from which there was no escape. The stench of oil and sweat permeated the permanently damp submarine. After what seemed like an eternity, Commander Fritz Hein ordered the vessel to rise to periscope depth. Protocol demanded that he confirm the kill or re-engage, but the burning wreck of the SS Shirvan was still afloat. They would have to finish her off. The torpedo tube was loaded and readied to fire, but caution must be maintained. Oddly, accompanying warships or any other Allied ships were nowhere to be seen through the periscope. No engine sounds could be heard on the hydrophones either. Lone ships were almost unheard of in the time of armed convoys. Where was the rest of the convoy, they wondered. They waited impatiently for nearly two hours and still seeing only the lifeboats, Commander Hein ordered another torpedo to be fired to ensure that the flaming wreck would either sink or be rendered completely unsalvageable. At 14.17 hours, the SS Shirvan shuddered as it was struck a second time by the U-boat's torpedo, but stubbornly refused to sink below the turbulent waves despite the two massive breaches in the ship's hull. Observing from a safe distance the ensuing fireball that engulfed the entire stricken ship's superstructure, Commander Hein was now convinced that the enemy ship was a complete loss. Mission accomplished. The wreck of the SS Shirvan, still in flames until the end, would not disappear beneath the waves until later that evening. It was a glorious moment, but the entire crew of the U-300 knew that hunting was far from over, and Commander Hein ordered the elated crew to maintain battle stations and keep a sharp lookout for their next prey or any threat, which was certain to come soon. Just a half an hour later, a medium-sized ship came steaming into the U-300's view. She was painted gray which meant the vessel was probably a naval warship. Again, no other ships could be identified. 
No signs of any convoy. It appeared that the Allied ship was engaged in rescuing the SS Schirvan's castaways. Hein immediately ordered an attack with a special new torpedo. Armed with a powerful 200-kilogram warhead, the T-11 Lutt torpedo could be fired at any target angle and would follow a curved path to its target, making it much harder to detect or evade. At 14.59, the submarine's torpedo hit the ship's hull just aft of the middle of the port side, exploding on impact with such force that the entire ship was momentarily lifted off the surface of the water, then listed to one side, quickly taking on water. Satisfied with his second quarry, as he carefully observed the wreck from his periscope, Commander Hine ordered the jubilant crew to dive and take evasive action. Godafoss Launched in 1921, the E.S. Godafoss was the flagship and the pride of the Icelandic shipping fleet. The Danish-built 1,500-ton steamship, affectionately called the Dream Child of the Nation, was owned by the Icelandic shipping company Eimskipfilag Islands. On the 20th of November, 1944, the E.S. Godafoss sailed with a convoy of nearly 200 ships from New York Harbor with a stopover in Scotland before the final port of call, Reykjavik, Iceland. A storm the day before had scattered the convoy ships, delaying their journey. After nearly a month on the ship, the passengers and the crew of the Golafoss were less than three hours from their final destination. With 12 passengers and 32 crew members, the E.S. Godafoss carried 44 souls. Captain Sigurdur Gislason, aged 55, was friendly, easygoing, and was renowned for his helpfulness and kind spirit. In his free time, he dabbled as a painter, specializing in landscapes, and enjoyed thundering down Iceland's dirt roads on his powerful motorcycle. The ship's general cargo was 1,240 tons, carrying a large supply of copper as well as a considerable amount of bottled whiskey. The Icelandic president's elegant new Packard limousine sedan, a gift from U.S. President Roosevelt, and two Steinway pianos were also part of the Golafoss's freight. Among the twelve passengers were four children. A doctor couple, Fridger Olason and Sigrun Brim, had been studying medicine at Harvard University and working in the United States but were now on their way back home to Iceland with their three children, four- and seven-year-old sons, and a few-month-old daughter. Ellen Inkibjord Waggle Downey, aged 23, was traveling home with her three-year-old son. She was married to an American military officer who had served in Iceland, where they had met. The journey to Iceland had been long and uneventful until the previous day's storm, which at first light found the ship separated from the convoy that the Goldafoss had been tasked with leading. All radio communication was forbidden, of course. In the early afternoon, due to poor communication and rough seas, only three ships remained in the vicinity of the Goldafoss. None of them were warships, 
In the wake of the storm, the ocean was calmer now, but remained choppy, with occasional waves battering the ship's iron hull. By all accounts, the passengers got on well together. On the Goldafoss that year, evenings were quite festive. The horrors of the war seemed far away. Icelanders were still celebrating their nation's independence from former colonial master Denmark, and the war was often referred to as the Blessed War because of the prosperity and the potential that had come to Iceland as a result of the British and American occupation. For the first time, modern, time-saving equipment was available and abundant, such as printing presses, gasoline-powered engines, barbed wire, and tractors. Unemployment was virtually non-existent. Reykjavik streets were filled with British, American, and Canadian soldiers, with over 40,000 men stationed in Iceland. The Goldafoss passengers enjoyed boozy, boisterous partying, and Haldor Sigurdsson, a journalist and jazz enthusiast, played records on a wound-up gramophone, which could be heard through much of the ship. Vertu Hjálmir Disa, by Icelandic crooner Hoiker Mortens, was one ballad often heard on that voyage. On the evening of 9 November 1944, a southeast storm lashed the North Atlantic around Iceland, scattering an approaching merchant marine convoy of ships from Loch U in northwestern Scotland. The convoy had been led by the E.S. Goldafoss. The British oil tanker S.S. Shirvan was the largest ship in the convoy. In order to mitigate the threat of U-boat attacks against cargo and passenger ships, large convoys composed of as many as 200 ships were the safest way to cross the Atlantic during the war. Icelandic vessels were very careful to fly the Icelandic flag to signal their neutrality, and Godafoss's relatively small size made it an even less attractive target to enemy submarines. The Goldafoss had avoided U-boat attacks before. In fact, she had sailed in a 1941 convoy that saw a tanker damaged and the sinking of the American destroyer USS Reuben James. Throughout the entire conflict, there had been no U-boat attacks on any Aimskip ships. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill had recently quoted in the news saying, The threat of U-boats is now greatly diminished. In the early afternoon of 20 November 1944, the officers on the bridge of the E.S. Goldafoss were searching the surrounding seas for convoy ships that had gone missing in the previous night's storm when they spotted the burning wreck of the S.S. Shirvan and two lifeboats bobbing up and down in the high seas, filled with shipwrecked survivors waving for help. While special rescue ships were responsible for picking up the shipwrecked survivors, no other ships could be seen that could assist the miserable castaways who were surely cold and wet, if not also suffering from injuries. Captain Sigurdur Gislason made up his mind and ordered the Goldafoss's helmsman to split off from the remainder of the convoy and steer toward the lifeboats. Due to the risk of a trap, convoy ships were technically forbidden from stopping to help survivors. But Icelandic captains, drawing on their years of experience in sailing around Iceland, had shown a tendency to assist shipwreck victims whenever they could, knowing their survival may well depend on rescuing them before they die of exposure. As they approached the lifeboats, 
the British sailors warned of torpedo attacks and a black flag was raised on board the Godafoss, signifying the presence of an enemy submarine. Nineteen sailors of the stricken Shirvan were dragged on board the Godafoss, and the two Icelandic doctors did their best to tend to the wounded seamen, many of whom were badly injured by the rampant fire. The Godafoss then set off again for her home port, just a few hours away. At 14.59 hours, the U-300's torpedo hit the hull of the Godafoss. A giant, gaping hole appeared on the Goldafoss's port side, which one survivor described as if a streetcar had gone through it. The noise and vibration of the explosion was overwhelming. The detonation had lifted the Goldafoss and pitched her 40 degrees to starboard. Her engines immediately stalled, and there was a total blackout. Some of the passengers lost consciousness on impact. Others, especially those in engine room and below the deck, were killed instantly. Amunter Magnusson, the first mate, recalled, I was standing in the smoking room on the upper deck when the explosion happened. I guess I quickly lost consciousness. Freeman Gudjonsson, who worked in the ship's galley, said, I was in the smoking room when the torpedo hit the ship. Because the windows were covered and, of course, all the lights went out during the explosion, it was very dark inside. Trying to comprehend what had just happened, I looked at myself as I lay on the floor and an injured man shuffled past me in the dark. Passengers and crew gathered on the boat deck and anxiously attempted to release lifeboats and rafts. Children were whimpering and general panic was not far off. Some managed to get down the listing hull and crawl into a lifeboat, but it was soon capsized by a large wave. Freezing cold and battered by the strong waves, others pulled themselves exhaustedly into the few available life rafts. It was clear to those left alive on board the Goldafoss that the ship would sink in a matter of minutes. Everything happened so quickly that there was no time to think, said Ausleik Sigurdardottir, who had been on her way home from studying in the United States. In the growing chaos, everyone was desperate to save themselves. They had little choice. The sinking ship was a death trap, and everyone knew from frequent rescue drills that it was vital to get a good distance away from the ship in order not to risk being sucked down when it sank. The shipwrecked survivors must either immediately get off the ship and get away as fast as possible or surely go down with the ship. It was too onerous to reach the remaining life rafts by climbing down the ship, so most on board the Godafoss had to throw themselves into the 7 degrees Celsius, 44 degrees Fahrenheit sea and try to swim toward them. The ship sank in less than seven minutes. Those who watched the submarine attack from the lighthouse on the nearby coast said that at first the ship slowly went down from behind but then briefly straightened and then went down almost vertically, bow first. One sound that would never be forgotten was the eerie, terrible howling and bursting sounds as the wreck was dragged to the bottom of the sea. A survivor recalled the horrible sight 
of struggling passengers and crewmen disappearing below the waves in a whirlpool. One passenger, perched high on the rapidly foundering Goldafoss, anxiously held on to a small boy who could not find his parents. As the ship descended into the dark waters, they realized there was little choice but to jump in the sea. They fell into the frigid, churning waters, but were unable to reach the surface. It took all my power to get away from the suction. Suddenly, I lost my grip on the boy. He just disappeared instantly. Only one thought came to my mind. Save yourself. Save yourself. Get up, up, up. You must breathe. I drank sea, salty, surf, and sea, and felt an overwhelming pain in my mouth, nose, and ears, but I finally made it to the surface. Then, the most awful part was listening to the children's cries of distress, knowing that no one would be able to save them. For a long time after the E.S. Goldafoss disappeared, the survivors saw nothing on the sea, no other lifeboats, and no people. After more than an hour of being mercilessly swept around by the waves and high winds, they could see the escort ships searching for the submarine, but no rescue vessels. The shipwrecked survivors waited all afternoon for help, knowing that a rescue would be delayed because the patrol ships had ordered to concentrate on finding and destroying the German submarine. One Goldafoss crewman, who clung to a life raft, remembered, My shipmates were there around me, either alive, dead, or in imminent danger of death. Just moments before, we had been preparing to return home, but now we were wet and cold on a life raft, while British corvettes dropped depth charges from overboard. Another Goldafoss survivor recalled the aftermath of the sinking with horror. I saw one of the British sailors from the SS Shirvan lying on his back in the water with his life vest. He had been horribly burned on his face. His eyes were gone. His nose burned off. His hands and everything I could see of him was scorched beyond recognition. But the poor man groaned, and I knew he was still alive, slowly dying in the cold sea as he floated past us. A Canadian Catalina aircraft flew over the site of the sinking and dropped life rafts and equipment, but with the high seas all around them, it was never noticed by any of the survivors. The life rafts and lifeboats were continuously battered by waves and rapidly filled with water. Two and a half hours after the attack, at around 1730, Allied rescue ship Northern Reward arrived at last for the few remaining survivors. A total of 14 crew members and 10 passengers, including four young children, had died. In addition, 18 of the 19 SS Shirvan castaways perished. Most had died of hypothermia. After the 19 survivors boarded the two rescue ships, a coordinated search and destroy mission for the submarine continued for 11 hours. The crew of the U-300, however, stealthily managed to evade the concentrated Allied attempt to destroy them with depth charges. The German submarine quietly slipped away, heading back to their base. At 3.30 that night, Northern Reward finally entered Reykjavik Harbor with the remaining castaways, 
most were taken for treatment to the hospital in Leugarnes. More than a week after the tragic Goldafoss sinking, two young boys' drowned bodies were found washed up on a sandy black beach in Snifelsnes, West Iceland. It is rumored that the two brothers were embracing one another in death. Theirs were the only bodies retrieved from the sinking of the two ships. 1939-1945 The Battle of the Atlantic claimed the lives of a staggering 72,200 Allied naval and merchant seamen. The German Navy's Kriegsmarine U-boats destroyed some 3,500 Allied merchant ships and 175 Allied warships. All this destruction, wrought by the Kriegsmarine, came at a heavy cost. By the war's end, 783 U-boats were sunk. Some 30,000 sailors were killed. Some people call the sinking of the Icelandic passenger ship the Titanic of Iceland. It was Iceland's greatest wartime loss. 24 Icelanders died. But the attack on Goldafoss was far from the first and only attack by German submarines on Icelandic ships, because they sank a total of eight Icelandic ships during the war, including the Goldafoss's sister, the Detifoss, which was torpedoed in January 1945. By the war's end in May 1945, some 230 Icelanders had lost their lives in the conflict. Most were killed on cargo and fishing vessels sunk by German aircraft, U-boats, and mines. Some four months after the deadly attack on the Goldafoss, in early 1945, the U-300 was sunk in the waters south of Portugal by British minesweepers, HMS Recruit and Pincher. Commander Fritz Hein and eight other crew were killed while attempting to scuttle their damaged U-boat, but 40 other sailors survived. Years later, Sigurdur Gudmundsson, who was on the bridge of the SS Goldafoss when the torpedo hit, met with the German Horst Koska, a radio operator on the U-300. Emotions tied to all the death and destruction from the tragic incidents of the war overwhelmed them. The former enemies, now comrades in peaceful times, both burst into tears and hugged each other. In 2016, the wreck of the ES Goldafoss was found at a depth of 40 meters, covered by a dense layer of mud. While raising the Goldafoss from the seafloor would be theoretically possible, the expense would be daunting, and many would rather let the wreck serve as a permanent grave to the 24 Icelanders who lost their lives that cold, blustery day of 20 November 1944. Well, thank you for sharing the article today, Frank. Thanks. It was really interesting to research and write this article. Yeah, so it is an interesting story about the encounter between uh, the former passenger and one of these uh, U-boat crewmen. Uh, so I believe in 2003, there was a book uh, by Ohtar Svensson called Utkatl Auros o Godafoss, or SOS, Attack on the Godafoss. And this book became rather popular. It was translated into German. Um, and then, you know, interestingly, there was a press conference, I think, held at the Frankfurt uh, Book Fair, 
where yeah uh this survivor and the former crew member met and you know had this really emotional encounter that you describe and you know i mean i think that does just kind of speak volumes right that uh they were kind of in a strange way bound together by this horrible experience that you know like with the distance and context of time that they both just kind of realized uh you know just how absolutely horrible this was that that's a very good point one of the things that i was considering though was whether this really could be considered like a uh, a meeting of of uh rivals because there's a lot to distinguish it from other cases that would be similar one being that iceland was a neutral nation mm. another that these were civilians yeah and um third the fact that it was so close to the end of the war for the germans meant that it was really just useless and um, they they had no chance of winning the war it was just like spite but uh, on the human side of things, I think that the German radio officer was probably just a young, delusioned man who was caught up in the whole Nazi thing. On the other side of it, though, it was only the most convicted Nazis or convinced Nazis that became U-boat crews. They were the most mm. fanatical. Mm. Um, I think, however, it's we want to be able to forgive and not forget, but understand and it must have been a, a very difficult reunion, I'm sure. Well, there's also just an obvious other layer of tragedy where uh, this other British tanker, the the it was so close to Iceland, like after making the crossing, and then to have this tragedy happen, you know, when the shore is practically in sight. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine being on the shore, just I've been there myself, um, on the tip of the Reykjanes Peninsula, and you can see ships going by, mm. and it's uh, estimated to be what two, three kilometers offshore that the people could observe the, this um, conflict and then the ensuing tragedy. So, just for my curiosity, you know, so you know, there are these modern nuclear submarines, obviously, that can just kind of stay at sea for months and months. Uh, you know, back then, these German U-boats were diesel-powered. I mean, like, how long could a German U-boat stay out at sea? How long could it stay submerged? That's a really fascinating question. I, I did a lot of research for this, and I found out a tremendous amount through um, documentaries. And the uh, U-boats were developing so rapidly that the ones that were made in the late 1930s versus the ones built at the very end of the war mm. were like night and day in terms of their abilities. So these later ones had the ability to travel for months at a time. And what is different from the U-boats versus what we consider a modern submarine is that they spent most of their time near the surface of the water or on the surface yeah, yeah. and would only dive and stay underwater when they were engaged in some kind of maneuvers like attacking the Shirvan or the Goldafoss. Um, this meant that they could save a lot of energy because if they were on the surface, they had less drag and therefore they used less diesel power. But, um, well, and obviously also oxygen, I presume. Yeah, that's true. They, <laughs> good point. <laughs> so they didn't actually need to keep that much, but they could stay under, um, I think, for five or six hours at a time oh. uh, without resupplying their oxygen. 
So there were 24 Icelanders in total who died on this day, and in that sense, you know, this has to be considered one of the worst events in Icelandic history, one of the deadliest days for the entire nation, right? Absolutely. There have been many events, natural disasters and such,、um, that resulted in the deaths of, of ten, even tens of thousands, but usually over a longer period of time. And we think of it differently when this is a man-made disaster. Which this certainly is, but、um, there were, as、uh, was mentioned in the article, a number of other attacks, and almost 200 Icelanders in total died in the space of only about two or three years.、Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I do think that there is a certain perception that Iceland was more or less unaffected by the war, and obviously, it did escape the absolute horror that happened on the continent. But it is maybe also just good to remember how there were real losses and tragedy here as well. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile remembering that、um, if one is visiting the beautiful Fossvog Cemetery、um, just、uh, south of Reykjavik, there next to the Pearl, by the way, if you ever happen to go, you can find memorials for、um, American merchant seamen. American naval officers, Canadian, British, and they're all neatly put up.、Um, and people often bring flowers, but not too far away from that are the graves of, I believe, twelve Germans who died、um, trying to fly over Iceland in the war、mm. for reconnaissance efforts. And I think there were a total of six air engagements in which.、Um, At least three of these aircraft were brought down, and these twelve crew members are, are are buried there. And it's quite touching to、um, go there with older German tourists, for example, who lay flowers on the graves and shed a tear. Well, I think that we'll just leave it there for today. And、uh, thank you so much for sharing the article today, Frank. Thanks. I look forward to、uh, doing more with World War II articles. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.